Well, thank you for that, Cade. And um, we just want to tell you that um, this church family, man, we, we truly love you. Uh, he showed up about two years ago, and at the, I think he may have been one of the only few young adults his age at that time. And um, so he's been a part of seeing this grow, we, church grow. We've only been here for two and a half years. And um, I remember the first Sunday Cade walked in, I grabbed a hold of him, and I never let him go. <laughs> I said, hey, what are you doing for lunch today? Come to the house. And that was it. We just never let him go. And uh, he's been such a blessing to my family and to so many of you um, as well. One of the things that I did fail to mention in the announcement time is that we do have these Connect cards. And I failed to also say, if you're visiting with us, that we're so glad that you're here. So I'm catching up with myself on that. And uh, so there's a card like this in front of the chair that's in front of you. And uh, please feel free to fill that out if you're so inclined. And there's a box, a little wooden box by the back door. That's where we collect those. So thank you again for being here. And if you are visiting with us today, we are uh, working our way through a book of the Bible, and um, that's what we do at Jinx Bible Church. We seek to teach the scriptures uh, one verse, one chapter, a book at a time uh, with the purpose of educating people in God's Word. I can vividly remember growing up as a young person in church and I heard a lot of sermons in my life. And I always felt like I never really understood the Bible. Uh, there was a lot of five points of this, six points to that, eight points to having your best life now kinds of sermons. And um, I became a young adult, and I thought the Bible was like a, a book that was locked, and you probably had to go to seminary and have a Ph.D. or something to understand it. Little did I know that it was written in Koine Greek, which was the common and most basic Greek of the day, uh, because God's heart was for people, and he wanted people to simply have an understanding of truth. And I found myself in a Bible church at the University of North Texas for the first time, and walked in, and we were about midway through the book of Revelation, and I realized, wow, this, this pastor just teaches the scripture, just one verse at a time, like read this verse, read this, here's the context, this is what it means. And I thought, if I keep showing up at this place, I can actually walk away with an understanding of a book of the Bible. And that, that concept just blew me away. I never even had thought about doing something like that. And so I went there for seven years and uh, found my way in at Dallas Theological Seminary with a heart's desire. God put a, heart, a desire in Cade's heart, and he put a desire in my heart. I'm like, I, I want to do that. Lord, if you, if you could use a broken vessel like me to do something like that, that would be amazing. And he set my feet upon a course that led uh, to do that very thing. And so, if you're visiting with us today, we are in the Song of Solomon. And the Song of Solomon, as you see here, um, says um, the title, Lovers for Life. This isn't your typical uh, book that most churches uh, study through. I've, I've had several um, of you who have been attending church for over 50 years of your life say to me, I've never heard the Song of Solomon taught from the pulpit before. And um, 
And there's probably some of you who are, are thinking, you know, the Song of Solomon was, was a book in the Bible. That's, that's amazing. And then as we've been working our way through it, some of you might have been thinking, wow, that, it says that in the Bible? God's Word says that? And it does. And we're at a portion of Scripture again this morning where we're looking at a, a section uh, going into the last major section of the Song of Solomon um, that I'm titling Lovers for Life. Because we are going to see in both chapters 7 and 8, I've got two sermons left in the Song of Solomon to wrap this book up, but we're going to see in verses 7 and 8 that God intends for our love song with our spouse to both deepen and grow. And as we look around at most marriages today, we wonder sometimes if that's even a possibility for a couple to really grow in their love and intimacy and passion for one another. To experience a deeper and richer love as the seasons of life pass from one to the next. It far too often seems that genuine excitement and appreciation for each other soon gives way to a somewhat of a boring tolerance in a situation that seems sometimes to have no remedy. Here's a few quibs that I discovered in the process of preparing for this message today. Perhaps you've heard some of these. Quote, I never knew what happiness was until I got married. But then it was too late. Or another one, marriage is a great institution, but who wants to spend the rest of his life in an institution? Now, these are intended to be funny, and I heard a few kind of awkward laughs there because you realize that it's funny, but that ain't funny. Because a lot of you have lived a long enough life and have been married long enough to recognize some of the realities that's in that and the pain that is associated with that. It reflects far too often truth in too many relationships today. And I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again because it's proven that repetition is oftentimes a key to learning. So if you are single here this morning, listen to me again. I've said this before maybe twice, and I'm going to say it one last time, so listen closely. Take notes if you need to. I'll go slowly. It's better to be single wishing you were married than married wishing you were single. Sometimes in our youth, we don't allow that truth to sink in. In the first passionate guy that comes across our path, we say, whoa, man. Not a lot of checking out of the character of the heart. Is this a woman who fears the Lord? But she sure looked good. Those jeans were tight. And sometimes we end up wishing we were single. I've heard in counseling sessions over the last 20 years, similar uh, strands of that chorus played over and over and over. And like I've said before, when that couple first got married and they stood in that altar, they couldn't hardly keep their mitts off one another. And then, unfortunately, those mitts turned into boxing gloves. But 
Because like in everything else in life, listen, something good, something great will never come from nothing. It will come by way of hard work. It will never come by way of a slack hand. And if you wish and desire to have a great marriage, it will come at great cost to both of you. So why get married if you're unwilling to count that cost? The cost of building a great marriage. You know the proverb of counting the cost of building a tower. You don't want to start building the tower and get halfway into the building of the tower and then cease because people will recognize it and they will, in essence, mock you and say, what happened? And the way we can build great marriages, the way you can build a great marriage is to personally know the creator of marriage. Because the God who created the institution of marriage did not intend marriage to be a place of great misery. As we've been learning from the Song of Solomon, he has intended marriage to be a place of great enjoyment and love and light and reconciliation and a catching of the foxes together, and everything that goes in between those things of life, of lovers for life. Here's a quote from Craig Glickman. I mentioned to you, he's one of the main commentaries that I've been reading, commentator on the book, The Song of Solomon. He says, The, the creator of marriage certainly did not intend such misery. He did not design this misfortune as a sort of divine penalty for the happiness of the first few months of romance. He is not a master of deceit who loves to trap people in varying degrees of agony, dying a slow death chained to their worst enemy. Believe it or not, marriage is really supposed to become better with age. Simply stated, marriages are not intended to go flat. Now, some of you, many of you, not, maybe not all, have known that I've done a lot of cycling in my life over the past 15 years, road cycling on a road bike. And every time I get on my bike to hit the road, every time, guess what I have to do? I have to add air to the tires. And I've oftentimes found it utterly amazing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the tube inside the tire. The tire's in great shape. There's not a hole. There's not a leak anywhere. So how is it every time I get to go ride that bike, it's dropped about 25 PSI? How does that happen? But for over 15 years, every time I get on my bike to go and ride, I add air to those tires. And if you don't, and you continue to proceed riding a bike, and you continue to allow the air to go down in your tires, you run the risk of harm, personal injury, because eventually you will get such low PSI that when you go into a turn, let's say doing about 15 to 18 miles an hour, and you need the pressure in that tube to be pushing that tire to the ground and holding it to the rim, if there's not enough PSI in that tube, your tire will roll off that rim, your rim will skip on the concrete as if it were as glass or ice, and you will go over and almost break your clavicle like I did. Where's Ben? Ben knows the pain of clavicle injury. Because on this one ride I was on, I checked the pressure in my tires, but along that 100-mile route that day, I picked up a couple of burrs on the side of the road when I stopped to refill my water bottle. And I did not know that, and I was slowly losing air pressure until about five miles left in that ride 
And I went into a turn doing about 20, and I kissed the concrete. Everything in life needs added energy. Everything. Think of your relationship this way. Every single day you wake up, your relationship has the potential of having lost some PSI, relational PSI, and it is on its way to going flat unless you add energy and add more substance to that relationship. And if you continue to avoid the obvious in your relationship, it can get so flat that it will crash and it will bring injury and harm to you. It's just the way life really works. You've heard the old saying before that familiarity breeds what? Louder contempt. That's true, isn't it? But what I've come to conclude, and I believe this is true relationally, is that familiarity relationally breeds passivity. And the longer you spend together relationally, the more passive you become relationally. And that passivity is the letting out of your relational PSI. And relationships do and will go flat. It's the second law of thermodynamics afflicting your relationship. It's unavoidable. You cannot prevent that unless... Every day you hook that air pump up, 120 PSI every time. Unless you get out of bed every day committed as partners, as husband and wife, as lovers for life, that you are going to invest the necessary and needed energy into the context of your relationship. You're not going to allow that to happen to you because you have eyes to see and, you look, and you've looked out into this culture and you have seen exactly what I'm talking about in people's relationships or you've experienced it to a certain degree yourselves. And none of us want that. Nobody wants that. Nobody gets married hoping they have a cruddy relationship later in life. Nobody. I've never counseled one person. They said, oh yeah, we got married because we wanted to hate each other. Ever. But that's where it naturally tends. And so again, if you desire to have something great, if you desire to do something great in your relationship, in your marriage, you must be committed to some things. If you want to be lovers for life, you must be committed to certain things. And in chapters 7 and 8, we're going to see... Um, an increase, a deepening, a richening in, their, in the, the aspects of their relationship in many ways, in their marital intimacy, in their lovemaking. We see it, we're going to see it in their conversations that they have with one another. We're going to see it in the commitments that they have to one another, to spending time together. We're going to see these things in these last two chapters. And when we get to chapter 8 in about four, three weeks from now, because we've got this sermon, and then we've got Palm Sunday next week, and then we've got Resurrection Sunday, and then the second Sunday in April, we finish up the Song of Solomon. When we get there, we're going to see some statements in chapter 8. They're just absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Love is as strong as death. Things like that. 
Jealousy is, is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. We're going to see some beautiful things in the second April, Sunday in April. But today, let's look at Song of Solomon chapter 7, the first 10 verses. This is kind of a large section I'm hitting here. Notice verse 1. Solomon writing, speaking here and writing to his bride, he says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O princess's daughter. Solomon is continually using words of affirmation and of appreciation for his wife and of her beauty in his eyes. And as we see here for the first time, Solomon takes the time to make an observation about his wife's feet and how they are beautiful to him. Now, we have no idea whatsoever what her feet look like, do we? We have no knowledge of that at all. But what we do know is that Solomon, her husband, makes the time to communicate with words something about her that he finds to be beautiful and desirable. And I believe therein is the key. He could have said, your ankles are as lovely as the fields of Lebanon. He's taking the time to make observation of things that are, that are appreciated, appreciated by him regarding her physical beauty. Guys, make note of this. This is the third time in the Song of Solomon where he goes down a list like this where he is describing descriptively the loveliness of his wife. He uses his words. He romances her with words. It's what we call verbal foreplay. He doesn't just get to the marriage bed and say, come on, honey, let's go. He uses verbal foreplay and he communicates with his words the glories. We're going to see that, the glories of what God has done. At the end of verse 1, he says, the, the, the curves of your hips are like jewels. What? The work of the hands of an artist. And we know from Solomon's writings in the Proverbs and other places that he knows that God is the artisan who created all humans. He's recognizing the beauty of God's creativity in his wife. He ain't worried about other women. The work of the hands of an artist. We see here that Solomon is a student of his wife. He's, he has studied her, and this is where we see that there's been a deepening in their relationship. There's been a deepening in their intimacy. When we go back to chapter 4 in the honeymoon section where he, again, kind of delineates on different aspects of the beauty of his bride, we see a broadening of this aspect in this one here in chapter 7. At some period later in their relationship, later in life, later in a different season of their relational love. Because I believe God intends for one man and one woman to be lovers for Life. And I'll tell you something, I've never known a woman who despised her husband for romancing her with words of affirmation and appreciation of both her beauty and character ever. Right, ladies? Right, married ladies? They're not saying anything right now, but I can assure you, you ask them when you get in, in private quarters with them, and they will affirm that what Solomon is doing with the Affirmation of words. Speak. Men have a tendency to not want to speak of their great affections 
for their love. Broad strokes that we have seen in the Song of Solomon are just this. Solomon's desire to romance his wife with open and active communication. We would say that Solomon was an expert at the art of the volley, right? The art of the volley of praise. If you missed that sermon on the art of the volley of praise, it's the third sermon in the series, The Song of Solomon. You can find that on YouTube. I would encourage you men to go back and listen to that, read the scriptures, and become an expert at the lover's volley of praise, of learning how to use your words to romance your wife. Because we're seeing this here even in the later seasons of their relationship. Solomon is doing more of that now than when their marriage first began. Verse 2, he says, and I'm going to kind of just work through this a little bit more quickly. Your navel is like a round goblet. A lot of this does not need a lot of descriptive help. Um, It's kind of self-explanatory, if you know what I mean. Your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. I told you some folks were saying, this is in the Bible? What? Yes, God has given us a book as hu- for husbands and wives to know how to have a God-glorifying and a richly, sexually satisfying relationship. That's in the Bible. God cares deeply about these, these issues, these matters of life. Because he intends for us to be lovers for life. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. We just see that he is working his way from her feet to her head and giving verbal affirmations and strokes of just the beauty of his wife in his eyes. Verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Verse 4, your neck is like a tower of ivory, your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Beth-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. Now, I thought that one might need a little help. You always got to be careful when you deal with the nose, right? I've always been a little self-conscious of my nose. I don't know if anybody else has. My wife always assures me, oh, no, I love your nose, which makes me feel comforted. But these towers... This one that faces Damascus, these were towers of security. These were towers of safety for the nation so that if an oncoming army were coming in, those in the tower had the prerogative of being the first to communicate and tell. It was a a tower of great repose. It was a beautiful thing within the nation of Israel to see these towers that, that were there for their protection and for their great security. Solomon is saying that her nose is likened unto that. In other words, she brings to him a tremendous sense of safety and security when he is with her. So if you use this one, guys, honey, your nose, it's like the, it's like the I don't know, like the, the, the quad cab Chevy or something. Make certain that you know exactly what you're doing before you just lay it out there because it might need some explanation. Where was I? Royce, what verse? I've already lost what verse I was in. Five, your head crowns you like Carmel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. And notice, the king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. So in verses 2 through 6, Solomon is, has delineated on 
and has demonstrated the deepening of their marital intimacy and the relationship therein. And then in verses 7 and 8 and 9, he says, now what he's going to do about it. He says in 7, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I ate, I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples. And your mouth like the best wine. And then she kicks in and she says to him, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. We've just kind of walked through a if you will, a, an intimate session between this husband and wife as they have deepened in their relationship because this is what relationships are intended to do. They are intended to deepen. And we see the great specificity with which Solomon spends in making the time and taking the time of romancing his wife with words. Women need that more than men do. And that's why only once in the Song of Solomon do we see her articulating the beauty of him and his looks. But on three different occasions, we have Solomon reaffirming for her that in his eyes, she is indeed one of a kind. The most beautiful gal in his eyes. And here we see they have enjoyed the lover's feast, and together they have fallen asleep. The end of verse 9. So we are, I believe, intended to be reminded here, husbands and wives, I'm going to include both, that romance isn't simply to be relegated to one's honeymoon or earlier years in one's relationship together. That's not just something relegated for the earlier years when you're in your great youth and strength. This is something that is intended to last a lifetime. And while we don't know how much time has lapsed in their relationship from when they first got married, we can clearly see and learn from this love song that a fresh wind and a fresh fire will keep the embers of your marriage bed plenty hot. And I've yet to talk to a man who wouldn't like the embers in his marriage bed to be hot. But sometimes I find there's not many guys willing to do the work. They're not willing to add the relational PSI into that relationship in order to assure the hotness of the embers of said marriage bed. They just want their wife to be in the marriage bed when they want them in the marriage bed. God's rigged life, guys, it doesn't work that way. As, as much as you would like for it to have been rigged that way by God, He didn't rig it that way. He's rigged life in such a way where when we find a glad submission to His Word and we see principles within His Word and we do His Word, human flourishing can take place even in the context of husband and wife relationships. See also the Song of Solomon, a book dedicated for that very purpose. Isn't this great? It's clear from this love song that God's plan for husband and wife is to be lovers for life. Now notice what she says in verse 10. Notice the, there at the end of the, at the very bottom here, verse 10. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now think about this. For a woman to say this, to feel this, and to truly mean this is a sure sign, men, that 
your heart has been turned toward your wife and that you have tended your relationship well. You have been committed to the catching and the killing of all sorts of little foxes that have tried to ruin your vineyard, your relationship. You have kept that relational air pressure at 120 exactly where it was intended to be in order to roll down the road of life best. For a woman to say this, you have tended her soul well. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, dang, I haven't tended her soul well. She might not say this exactly. Listen, there's a beautiful verse in the scripture that says, forgetting what lies behind, right? I'm pressing on beginning today. I'm going to just press on beginning today to do the things that God has called me to do. And that might mean that I go to my bride and I say, you know, I need you to forgive me. I haven't done things the right way. I've tried to, be, I've tried to outsmart God. I've tried to do things my way instead of his way. And look at where it's kind of gotten us. Take some ownership of your relationship. It's yours. It's your love song. And if you want it to be great, then make it great. Go from good to great. Make it great. Start today. And some of you, your tires, your relational pressure might be extremely low. And you need a serious dose of of relational PSI added into that relationship, some serious energy added into that relationship. I just want to encourage you today to do that. Don't throw in the towel. That's what your adversary, the devil, wants you to do. It says in John 10, 10, the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. And in particular, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy your relationship. Why, you ask? Great question. Ephesians 5 tells us that your marriage relationship is that which images Christ with his church. And the adversary would, do nothing, would love to do nothing more than to harm the image of Christ's church through your relationship. Fight the good fight of faith. Seek reconciliation. We saw that two, two sermons ago. Part one, part two. Be committed to reconciliation. And start, forget what lies behind. Start today. Leave this place committed today to doing things God's way. And if you need help figuring out how to do things God's way, come see me. That's what I do. I, I eat this stuff up. I live in the scriptures. I can help you. And then you can learn to eat in the, live in the scriptures and eat the scriptures and eat them up. And God's wisdom, the wisdom in this book, will give you everything you need for a flourishing human life. Everything, including relational blessedness. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. In all that counseling I've done, I've never once had to counsel a couple due to a lack of physical intimacy in the relationship when a woman was feeling this way. Almost every relational counseling issue between husband and wife, it, it almost always revolves around a couple things, either money or sex. And they're interrelated in a lot of ways. But when a woman feels this way, I've never had a woman come and say, my beloved is mine and my desire is for him, but I just can't stand him. No, it doesn't work that way. You do it God's way, you'll be amazed at her response. How do I know? Still not convinced, guys? Still not convinced? Okay, that's fine. Some of us guys are slow learners. I understand that. Look at verse 11 and 12. See if this helps you out any. Notice what she says. She says, come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. 
Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. Still not convinced? Here, and and ladies, this is a significant point of interest that needs to be made here. One of the things I've heard, I hear from guys in counseling sessions all the time is that my girl never takes the initiative in anything when it comes to, to sexual romance and intimacy. But what do we see here? We see the, this woman saying to her beloved, she's saying, come. She's the one saying, let us go out into the country. Let us go into the villages. She's the one saying, let's find a way to make a rendezvous. Let's get out of here for the purpose so that I can give you my love, for the purpose of me spending time with you so that we can go and rise up early in the morning when we're in the village or in the country, and we can go check out our vineyards. And if you remember some of the vineyard analogies from earlier in the Song of Solomon. It's talking about their, their sexual... Their, them, them, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and let us see whether the vine is budded. Uh-huh. And whether the blossoms have opened. Uh-huh. Because in the countryside, in the villages, she's making the initiative. She's saying, let's go do it because I want to give you my love. I'm telling you guys, whenever you romance your woman rightly, and, sometimes, and listen, it's the easy to say. It's the hard to do. Right? It's easy to Pastor, it's, it's easy for you to say this, but you're not married to my husband, or you're not married to my wife. It's easy for you to say this. This is hard to do. And I don't deny that. I live in the real world. I've talked to a lot of people. I understand the, tr- the, the, the travails and the difficulties of real life. But what I'm hoping you see is that even in the later sessions of their love, it's intended to be love for life. And we see that... You've, you've heard this before, right? Women are what? Crockpots, men are microwaves. Is this woman a crockpot? I say not. I say that's a fable. And the reason women are crockpots is because men don't know how to do what verse 10 says. They don't know how to, to, to treat their wives to get to, want to their wives speak like this. Because whenever you learn how to romance with your words and whenever you learn to, to do things in God's economy the way God has called us to do things, check this out. She's a microwave. Verse 11 and 12, she's saying to him, let's go, let's, let's, let's do this. And man, I, I know about every guy married in here is kind of silently going, amen. Preach that, brother. <laughs> Wax on that one. Land right there for a while. God brought you together to be lovers for life. You have to do everything in your power to keep it that way. Relational PSI every single day is needed and necessary and a must. Familiarity will breed passivity in your relationship and it will go flat. And then sometimes when it goes flat, you come to me and it's so dang flat, you're rubbing the rim on the road and it's all scuffed up and scarred up. There's soul wounds. Man, that's hard. It's hard to work past some of those soul wounds. Words that were said that seem like they're impossible to take back. 
And no matter how many times you said, I'm sorry, it seems like they're just unwilling to forgive. That's real life. This may seem somewhat like pie in the sky. Listen, this is the way it ought to be. That's why I started off saying anything good or anything great requires work. How bad do you want this? You must work for it for the rest of your lives together. Notice verse 13. If you thought that maybe she was let pumping the brakes a little bit, she says, the mandrakes have given forth fragrance. Listen, mandrakes were a plant that women would eat, believing that it would make them, would aid them in their sexual desires and their fertility. This is her way of saying that her sexual desires for Solomon, her husband, and she's open and, and she's saying, hey, the mandrakes have given forth their fragrance. My desires, my passions for you are, are ripe and ready. And over our doors, she says, are all choice fruits, both new and old. She's saying, hey, listen, um, there's some old ways that we have shown love to one another intimately, but I've got some new ways for you too. It's always growing. And notice she says, which I have saved up for you. I mentioned this early on in the Song of Solomon. Your love song is for you. There's no room, zero, there's no room for another man or for another woman in that song. There's no room for pornography, zero, it will kill it. There's no room for soft porn, it will kill it. There's no room for just lingering over the lingerie magazines. Oh, I'm just looking to buy something for my wife. It will eat your mind away so that when you see your girl, she doesn't match up to what you saw, and then you're disappointed for life. And then you will spend a long time filling in that rut that you created. So don't do it. Stop it. Don't go there. The carnage of individuals who have done that are strewn across this countryside and, yea, across the world, and we're smart enough to know it and see it. We just can't control ourselves. We just don't have self-control. The Spirit of God, it says the fruit of the Spirit is what? One of the fruits of the Spirit is, is that. It is self-control. But it's not magical. It's not like a genie in a bottle. It means you get up every day in your relationship with God that will go flat if you don't add relational PSI in that relationship too. And you need to spend time with God every single day in prayer asking Him to help you with whatever sin issues or struggles or temptations you may have. Where am I reading the scripture today? What verses am I memorizing this week to help me fight the good fight of faith? Where is it at? Can you imagine going to battle and just walking out there in your jammies? Never. You would never do that. You'd be fully guarded with everything you needed to go win a battle. This is a spiritual battle you're in for the soul of your, you and your relationship with your mate. She said, I've saved it up for you. We save everything up for our spouse. Everything. Save it up for them because they are indeed, as it says right there, our beloved. Isn't that beautiful? This is right here in the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon shows us from chapter 1 to the end of the book that this woman was just as desirous for her guy physically as he was for her. 
And I believe that if a husband and wife will learn and perfect the art of the volley of praise, and these are all sermons that we have done as we've walked through the Song of Solomon, the art of the volley of praise and learn and perfect the art of catching and killing the little foxes and learn and perfect the art of reconciliation, that together they will learn and perfect the art of being lovers for life. And it is a work that you will do until death alone parts you. Isn't that beautiful? That's the way it's intended to be. And notice, we see that God gives it a big amen. See right here? Remember from chapter 5, verse 1? I'm going back a few chapters here, but remember from chapter 5, verse 1? He, he, says, he says here, I have come into my garden. In other words, he's enjoyed sexual intimacy with his bride, his sister, his bride. He has gathered all these things. He has done this. And this is where God is inserted into the song. And God gives his affirmation that love within the context of marriage, he says, listen, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. We know that's true. We've seen it. We know it. We need to be those who are willing to live it and fight for it with everything we have. And then in wrapping this up this morning, notice chapter 8. Verses 1 through 3, we just see her continual gushing over of her desires to be with this man. She says, oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No one would despise me either. Now, she's not literally wishing he was a brother, but it's why it says like. In other words, brother and sister relationships were such that there was the ability to do you know, displays of affection publicly without the shame. Husbands and wives did not do that in their culture. She's saying that I wish even in, a, in a, an outdoor context that I could show you the kind of affection that I could if you were my brother. I desire that. And then she says, I would lead you, verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to instruct me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my... Here we go again, pomegranates, and then the most intimate of positions right there, verse 3, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. She's saying, I want to make love with this man. That's what she's saying. I want intimacy with this man. And this is the way it's intended to be all the way to the end of our lives. So help us God. And it can be. And so Solomon says to the daughters of Jerusalem, that same refrain that we heard him say many times before, he says, I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. It's a, it's a public affirmation or confirmation publicly to others, not just don't arouse or awaken my girl or me. You don't do that either. Now, we've made that application to us, but here Solomon is saying it directly to them. If you want a relationship like I've got, like we've got, do it God's way. Don't go into premarital sex. It'll kill it. You'll end up living with some regret, have some soul wounds. Can you trust him? Can she trust me? I could wax on that a little bit, but I need not. Solomon is saying here, listen, if you want this kind of relationship and you're still single, I started off with you singles, do it God's way and fight the good fight of faith. Add your relational PSI every single day. And if you find yourself getting a little bit flat, do whatever you must. Whatever it takes to get it back snuffed up where it needs to be. Are you following me? Is the teaching of God's word pretty amazing and clear and relational? And he wants you, husbands and wives, to experience marital bliss.
He didn't invent the creation of marriage so that you could suffer for the rest of your lives together. Fight the good fight of faith. Come to know the creator of that institution of marriage and he will walk with you every step of the way. And I'll be glad to help you out as well if you need some help. Let's pray.